0: Father, as we consider the conditions in the world today, politically, economically, socially, uh, we recognize we're living in a day of great chaos. And we realize, Lord, that there is no sense in depending upon the strength or the wisdom of man because it seems to fail at every juncture. And so, Father, we're pointed to you, recognizing, Lord, that it is the wisdom of God that is the only perfect wisdom. It is submission to the law of God and the will of God that will alone bring peace and happiness and prosperity to our land and to this world. Father, we acknowledge that one day, at least we believe that Scripture teaches us that Christ will come to rule and to reign. In the meantime, Father, I pray that we will be about our business of being light and salt here in our society. Grant to us wisdom when it comes to Uh, voting for the uh, uh, leadership of this land and I pray father that you might raise up a godly leadership for this country and father pray that you might send a great revival sweeping across this land as some have said we need a third great awakening father and we ask that you might bring that and that it might begin even in our own hearts this day Lord we ask for your blessing during this class time we ask that you will minister to us through your word give us insight into this passage, and bless those who are not with us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Several families are in the uh, high school situation this morning, I guess. Chapter 14 of Genesis. Begin reading at verse 13. Chapter 14, verse 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew, Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. Last week, we introduced in uh, this passage and worked our way uh, into it briefly. And I noted the fact that this uh, fugitive, sometimes we don't think too much about it. He's just a deliverer of a message. But if you can kind of put yourself in the sandals of this fugitive, I mean, he had a task before him. He had to run 50 miles. And not only 50 miles, he had to run 50 miles uphill, 4,100 feet elevational change from the place of the battle to the place where Abram was living. So that was quite a task for this man as he made the journey. We noted last week that he must have known something about Lot and known where Abram was in order for him to even make the contact and and to go up there with the message. We noted that uh, in this particular passage, there is evidence here of an alliance, that Abram had struck up an alliance with these three Amorite brothers, and together they had formed their own little coalition. And certainly that coalition of force controlled the area around Hebron, so that they were pretty secure up there and not really fearful of of probably any other alliance that could have been formed within Canaan at that particular time. We have to remember, Canaan was divided into small entities, little city-states and tribal uh, groups around, and there was no great central government in Canaan at this particular time. And the Canaanites were not even of one family. There were numerous tribes of Canaanites, and uh, so... Abram with his allies would have been able to maintain their own security uh, with their own force. Now, when the word came, we read how quickly Abram responds, and when Abram heard that his relative, that is his nephew, had been taken captive, comma, he led out of his house 318 trained men. There seems to be no hesitation, no time for great agonizing prayer or debate with himself. You Remember uh, Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof, you know how he says, well, on one hand this and then on one hand that, and he goes back and forth until he finally comes up with sort of a decision. I don't think Abraham went through all of this, although he could have. We noted that he could have thought about Lot's disrespectfulness, Lot's stupidity, uh, all that Lot had done and basically said, hey, Lot is getting what he deserves. I'm just glad, you know, that I don't have to be involved. No, that wasn't his reasoning. He quickly gathers together his forces and immediately sets out in pursuit of these Mesopotamians who have kidnapped his nephew and the other people of Sodom and Gomorrah and Zeboim and Adma and so forth. Now, it's very interesting to think about these 318 men. We're told they are born in his house. Now, that doesn't mean they were literally born inside Abram's personal tent, It means that they were born under the authority, under the umbrella of his household in general. In other words, they were part of those that were attached to Abraham as his, what what shall we call them, employees, uh, people who were serving him, who were caring for his vast herds and all of the other items that comprised his wealth. Um, He had thousands of animals. And so there were numerous other families attached. In fact, if we think about this for a minute, 318 men who were of warrior age, old enough to go forth and fight a battle, which probably means that they were 20 to 40, somewhere in that particular range. Could have been a little broader than that, but nevertheless, sort of in that range. And and you analyze it for a minute and you think, okay, these are men of that age. What about younger men, older men, women? You end up probably with a total a group of people attached to Abraham of somewhere close to 2,000. So, I mean, uh, this is a pretty good-sized little village that is attached to Abram personally. So who are these people? This is the range crew. (laughs) This is sort of the uh, guys who who drove the animals. And I think we could kind of picture them, as we do today, uh, as kind of a rugged Bedouin-type people. Individuals were used to living out on the range and dealing with the animals, and they were strong and sinewy, and I think they were prepared to use both weapons and to ride long distances in hard pursuit. Considering this, Abram, I think, knew that 318 was not going to be sufficient. And even whatever else he could garner wouldn't be sufficient either. But he did call his allies to join him. And there's no mention of how many that constituted. Uh, The three brothers, three Amorite brothers, contributed their forces. Uh, Whether that was triple, uh, you know, or quadrupled uh, Abraham's number, we don't know. Maybe it was just a small addition. Whatever it was, I think that Abram here was in charge of a force That conservatively would have numbered 500, might have numbered as many as 1,000. Hard to tell. But whatever is that number, it's a teeny fraction of the enemy that he is pursuing. Now, can, can we get this picture? Here, Abram and the allies, they've gotten themselves together. And once they're ready, and they've got the supplies they need with them, the weapons with them, they take off north up the ridge route. And I think most of them are riding camels. And I think they were moving pretty fast. And can you imagine the sight as the Canaanite villages were passed along the way by this 500 uh, camel-mounted warriors dashing by? It must have been quite a sight. I think many came out and said, whoa, what's happening here? As they went by. Kind of a motley crew, obviously. They wouldn't have been all dressed up in uniforms. They would have been dressed in whatever they normally wore and probably with a kind of a variety of weapons. Uh, Not all issued the same weapon, right? Whatever they happened to have handy. may have been no more than a big stick. Uh, Who knows? And uh, it was probably a relatively terrifying sight as they charged northward up the ridge route in pursuit of Chetalamer and his army. Now, Chetalamer had basically as he as he came south down the king's highway Uh, you have your map there and then the king's highway is over on the eastern side the dashed line on the right there he had come down that route and he had defeated six nations as he came down so he had defeated these forces he had gone all the way to the gulf of aqaba he'd come north out of there up to kadesh barnea over to the uh, valley of sedim to defeat the five cities there And now, I believe he is marching north up through the Jordan Valley, probably parallel to the river, uh, marching northward up through the valley. He had wiped out all the enemy along the way. He had destroyed those that might interfere with his, with his move, movement. And so what did he have to fear? He knew there were no great alliances. There were no great armies or coalitions in this particular area. Over on the other side were a bunch of little city-states and tribal groups. He had nothing to fear with his vast army. And so he marched slowly, I think, no big hurry, up the valley of the Jordan River. And as he arrived to the Sea of Galilee, I believe he probably branched to the west and, and took the easier, lower, flatter route around the western side of the Sea of Galilee up to the north of the sea. And I think they camped often. They enjoyed the fruits of their conquest and were taking it easy. After all, they'd earned a little R&R, right, after this brilliant campaign of victory as they came down through the area of modern Jordan. I think Abram somehow managed to pick up information as he went. There were individuals who kept, he kept encountering who knew that, whoops, the army of Chetalamer has passed this point, passed this point. And so he basically knew where he was going to have to go to try to intercept the army. He knew how far ahead of them, uh, of him they were, at the pace that they were moving, and where he'd have to move to intercept them. And so I believe he went straight up the ridge route, and he went across the valley of Zdralin, or Jezreel, and then cut over, hooked over uh, towards the Sea of Galilee, probably not going down to the sea itself, but hooking over just to the west of it, pla- past what are known as the Horns of Hattin. Very interesting place. If you remember anything of medieval history, it was at the Horns of Hattim that the crusaders suffered their last tragic defeat at the hands of uh, Saladin, in the uh, Middle Ages, at the time of the Crusades, but passed there and and hooking in so that he would catch them there, at a place in those days that was known as Laish, and it's marked there on your map north of the Sea of Galilee. You'll find the city of Laish. Now Laish was a Canaanite town. It was a small town. Uh, it would later be called the city of Dan, because the tribe of Dan would divide and a portion of the tribe of Dan would go up north and would capture this city to make it their center. A portion would remain down further in the south uh, over towards the plains of, Phyllis, of Philistia. And from that group would arrive arise, of course, uh, the great Samson. But the northern group would go up and uh, occupy this particular area, and it would later be known as Dan. But at this time, it's the Canaanite city of Laish. The Mesopotamians... I believe we're resting and enjoying themselves there. Now, if you've never been there, you don't know how to picture this. And I don't know if I can describe it well enough, but I don't know that there's a more beautiful place in all of the Holy Land than the area around Dan. It's just gorgeous. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon, or Mount Hermon. And, and you, whenever you get free from the trees, you can look up the slopes onto Mount Hermon. And Right nearby is a big spring that bubbles up, just bubbles up right out of the ground. And it flows away and becomes one of the sources of the Jordan River. The Jordan River has four or five different sources, and that's one of them. <laughs> and the whole area was luxuriant in vegetation, and it still is today. One of the few places that it is in much of the Holy Land. But uh, it's like a park, like a garden there at this particular place. So you can just imagine this army all spread out all over the place, enjoying the beauty of, of this particular scene there, the fresh water bubbling up out of the ground, the trees for shade, just relaxing and enjoying themselves. Josephus tells us that most of them were dead drunk, probably enjoying the fruit of their victory a little bit too much. And so here they were, having a really a good time. Sort of their... Uh, Their place of, uh, what do you call it when you get a few days off? (laughs) Yeah, R&R. But what do you call it when you give somebody a few days off from the military? Leave, Leave, yeah, leave. Leave to take their R&R there at at Laish Dan. They weren't expecting an attack. As I said before, everybody had been destroyed. That could have been a threat to them. And so I don't think they they were guarding themselves very well. I think the guys who were out on... On guard duty, we're probably drunk too, uh, having a good time, and uh, weren't paying much attention after all what was there to be afraid of. What does Abram do? Well, Abram, although this army was probably not prepared for his attack, he couldn't necessarily know that. He knew he was vastly outnumbered. I would suspect that he was at least outnumbered 10 to 1. And it may have been a far greater number than that, but at least 10 to 1. And so he had to plan very, very carefully. He had to strategize wisely here in order to use his meager forces to deal with a greater enemy. Now, Gideon would do something similar later on, right? Gideon with 300 men would rout a huge Midianite army. Not, of course, by the wisdom of a man but by the wisdom and power of God. But that also is the factor here, as Melchizedek makes quite clear uh, in the next passage. Now, the scripture tells us that Abram divided his forces, as Gideon would later do, and he attacked at night, as Gideon would later do. Do you suppose, is it possible, that when Gideon made his attack, that he had any thoughts of Abram's previous attack? I don't know. But at least there was this precedent that he could have looked back to that had occurred many years before. Now night attacks were not normal. In our modern days, we don't think much about it. People attack any old hour of the day or night in modern military uh, activity. But night attacks were not common in those days. And there were many reasons for that. One was that they were highly superstitious about the night anyway. Most of these pagan peoples believed that all kinds of things were creeping around in the night, especially ghouls and ghosts. And, and so you just didn't want to be out there in the night if you could avoid it. You know, stay safely inside your tent, stay close to one another, don't go marching off through the night uh, to make an attack. Plus, the fact, obviously, Combat in those days they didn 't have these modern uh, uh, what are the infrared glasses where you can see almost as bright as day when you went into an attack, if it were at night and it was a moon, moonless night you didn 't know whether you were fighting friend or foe i mean suddenly you 're locked in hand to hand combat and who in the world are you fighting and Of course, it rendered all missiles useless right and when I say missiles i don 't mean <laughs> modern missiles, but Uh, spears and lances and arrows. I mean, you you go shooting arrows in the middle of the night, you don't know what you're shooting at or who you might hit. So night attacks were not common at all. So the point of it is the Mesopotamians were absolutely and totally surprised. They couldn't have been more surprised. And as a result, of course, they were in utter confusion. I'll remember the later event with Gideon. It's the same thing happened. In that particular case, they were so confused, they killed each other. In this case, we aren't told that, but we are told that they were routed. They had no idea who this attacker was. They didn't have any idea who it could possibly be or how many of them were involved, because they didn't expect anybody. They they just simply knew there weren't forces around sufficient to threaten them. And so this was a total surprise. And you could be sure probably some of them thought they were being attacked by the shades of the night. (laughs) You know, that there was some kind of a supernatural force involved here. Well, there was a supernatural force involved. It's called God. They panicked, and they fled. They fled to the northeast, up in the direction of Damascus. And Abram, we're told, pursued them. How far did he pursue them? Well, at least 50 miles, because he pursued them as far as Hobah which is north of Damascus. The exact location is not known. But Hobah means hiding place. So he pursued them as far as this particular place, whatever it was. And at that point, he broke off pursuit. They were absolutely shattered and routed, running man for man. No organization left whatsoever as they fled. And of course, Abraham had pursued what he was after anyway, had had gotten what he was after. That is, they had left all the spoil behind. As they ran, they just left it all behind. All that they had worked for, all that they had garnered, all that they would have to show for their victory was left behind. All the goods and all the people. Because if you're running for your life, you don't hang on to things that might hold you back, right? Not, isn't always true, though. Many, many years later... When Cortez captured or attempted to capture the, the capital of the Aztec people, Tenochtitlan, which is modern day Mexico City, uh, when it looked like they were about to be overwhelmed by the Aztec forces, they did flee and they took all the gold they could carry with them and they fled off into the night down causeways through the lake carrying all this gold. And they tripped and stumbled and fell into the lake, grasping all of this gold, and many of them drowned because they wouldn't let go of the gold. So there are times that people are foolish enough to give their lives for some physical possessions, but these people weren't. <laughs> they said, hey, we don't care. Let's get out of here. And so they left behind all the people and all the goods that had been taken from Sodom and the other cities of the valley of Siddim. Imagine Lot now. What would Lot's response be? He has been saved by his uncle. His uncle has ridden onto the scene, driven off the enemy, and freed Lot and whoever was with Lot. See, very interesting, <coughs> I, I was thinking about this last night. There's no mention of Lot's wife, no mention of Lot's children, just Lot. Does this mean he didn't yet have a wife and children? Hard to tell, because the events that involved the destruction of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, he did have a wife, and he did have daughters that were old enough to be married. And it doesn't seem like it's that many years between this point and that point. So maybe those are just assumed within the statement where it says, and also the women, at the end of verse 16. Were they lumped into that? Well, who knows? But Lot was rescued. And I think Lot was a bit chagrined Happy oh delighted to be rescued, but it a bit chagrined to be rescued by the very uncle that he had mistreated many many years before and basically Indicated that uh, he didn't need him anymore and he was going to go his way and make his own way And he would do the right thing and everything would just be okay God was merciful on this man lot God could have allowed lot to be carried off in captivity and he could have spent the rest of his life in captivity I mean, think about it. The children of Israel, or the Jews, were carried into captivity, were they not? Even godly ones were carried into captivity. Jeremiah, he was carried off down into Egypt, where apparently he died. Um, Daniel, Ezekiel were carried off to captivity, and as far as we know, they never made it back, and certainly Daniel didn't ever make it back to, to Jerusalem or Judea. They died in captivity, and they were godly people. What about this guy, Lot, who's kind of compromised his righteous standing by living in Sodom? God rescues him. God gives him a second chance. And so what does he do? He goes back to Sodom. He says, thank you, uncle. Appreciate this. Let me have my goods back and and whoever people are attached to him, his family, whatever, I'm going back to Sodom. I think Uncle Abram said, are you sure that's a good thing to do? Don't you think you ought to get out of that place? I'm reading between the lines here, but it's hard to believe that Abram wouldn't say something to his, to his nephew. And we find that Lot decides he's not ready to give up his worldly friends nor the comforts of urban living, even though I don't know how you can count being defeated in battle and carried off as spoils of war or comforts, but nevertheless... Uh, certainly that was an aberration. He insisted on moving back and reestablishing himself in Sodom, and that, of course, would lead to another major event in scripture where Abram would be involved again uh, over the city of Sodom. Verse 17, and down to the end of the chapter, Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveth, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, "Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies." into your hands and he gave him a tenth of all and the king of Sodom said to Abram give the people to me and take the goods for yourself and Abram said to the king of Sodom I have sworn to the Lord God most high possessor of heaven and earth that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours lest you say I have made Abram rich I will take nothing Except what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their share. That last verse, of course, is what tells us that the alliance went with him. It doesn't say that earlier, but this helps us to know that those other allies went with him, with their particular forces. The peaceful patriarch becomes a mighty warrior. This shepherd sheik, in his very first military campaign, brilliantly defeats a great Mesopotamian army. It's unimaginable. Purely in human terms, it couldn't have happened. There is no way it could have happened. It's like Podunk University playing the University of Miami and defeating them 100 to nothing, you know. (laughs) It just can't happen. No, it's impossible. It's sort of like, uh, I, I remember reading, what was in the Guinness Book of Records of some, some places, some little tiny school defeated Georgia Tech in, in basketball or something. And, and so Georgia Tech challenged them in football. Well, this school didn't even have a football team. So they had to put one together, and then Georgia Tech ran the score to 212 to nothing, which is yeah. the worst defeat in, in history of college football. But, you know, it, it was a vengeful thing. But purely in human terms, there's no way that Abram and his puny little force here could defeat this large, trained Mesopotamian army. But remember what David did with one little rock against the mighty Goliath. There was no way David could defeat Goliath in a normal, uh, under normal circumstances, but God guided the stone. What about Hezekiah as his puny little city faced the mighty Assyrian army of Sennacherib, 185,000 men strong? That's a big army, in those days especially. And Hezekiah had said to, I mean, uh, Sennacherib had said to Hezekiah, Look, I'll even give you 2,000 horses if you could put 2,000 riders on them. In other words, he was telling Hezekiah, you didn't even have 2,000 men to face my 185,000. So I mean, you know, obviously kind of a lopsided thing. But with one little prayer, that whole army was destroyed. And as we think of that and what happened here, we're reminded of the verse we read last time, that greater is he that is in his people than he who is in the world. And by the might of God, this great army was defeated by a very small army. I think it's important for us to recognize that Abram faced a real army. There really were flesh and blood warriors out there that had to be fought. But the true battle was a spiritual one. The true fight was in the spiritual realm. The ultimate enemy was not the Mesopotamians, was not Chetalamer, was not Tidal. It was, Satan and his minions, they were the true enemy. They were the inspiration and the force behind the victorious armies of Chetalamer. And when you think back through some of these Old Testament accounts, sometimes we don't always recognize that when Deborah and Barak went against the Canaanites, it was a spiritual battle above all else. That when Gideon fought the Midianites, it was clearly a spiritual battle more than it was anything else. And when Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, more clearly than maybe than any of the others, it was a spiritual battle because his army could not break through those walls, but God could take care of those walls in a split second. And so it is with you and with me. Our battle is not really a physical battle. In whatever situation we're struggling, it is a spiritual battle. And the forces of darkness are arrayed against us. And the enemy will use that, that snotty boss, that uh, you know, co-worker who's a jerk, uh, will use whatever to, to try to get at us, to destroy us, to cause us to act in an unchristian way, to cause us to have fear, to cause us to have doubt, to cause us to act in an ungodly manner. We have often read in Ephesians 6 these words, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm. We often read that passage, but often we don't recognize how real it is in our lives every single day. And that when we face problems, it's because the enemy is there working along with our flesh and the system of the world to try to derail us, to get us off the path that God has put us on. We have every reason, though, to be as victorious as, as Abram was this day, as David would be over Goliath, as Gideon, as Moses, as the other great heroes of the faith. A passage that I think really enforces this in our minds is Romans chapter 8. There are many but this one came to my mind as particularly meaningful relative to this. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, that is not a statement saying that there can't be anybody against us. It simply means they cannot prevail. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Again, that's not a promise that he's going to give us every single little thing we want in terms of the material realm. It's talking about the victory, the power, the, 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 the ability to live the way God wants us to live and to do what God wants us to do. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. Because if God is for us, no one can stand against us. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is always going to go the way we think it ought to go. But it will go the way God intends for it to go. And it, it, of course, is a broad statement which encompasses not only this life, but the life to come, uh, as we read through this passage. And the things that will be ours sometimes are not seen right here and right now, but they will be ours ultimately. Ultimately. And often, many of them are ours here in terms of enabling us to carry out the task that God has given us to do. And the greater the task, the more that he empowers us to do it. Now, sometimes we fail in a task because we don't trust him, because we don't take on the task in submission to his authority. We try to do it in the flesh. And that's one of the reasons why people who are blessed with, with great talent and uh, great gifts sometimes tend to be the, the, the um, uh, easier targets for the enemy because they've begun to trust in their own abilities and in the gifts they have been given rather than to trust in God himself. Because our talents and our abilities are useless unless God empowers them. And it's, I think it's pretty easy to tell often whether a person is functioning in the power of the Lord or in the power of the flesh. Sometimes they can perform wonderfully. They can sing wonderfully. They can play that instrument wonderfully. They can preach wonderfully. They can teach wonderfully. They do all these things wonderfully, but there just is something missing. There's no power. There's no uh, result from it. And then we know, or at least we can believe, that they're probably attempting to do it in the power of the flesh rather than in the strength of the Lord. the scripture tells us that if we submit unto God and resist the devil, he will flee. And that's what I think we need to do continuously as we serve him. And I believe that's what Abram did. we're not told, but I think Abram sought God Almighty before he went into that battle. Now, did he hold a giant prayer meeting with these Amorite allies? I don't know. But Abram goes into battle with great faith in his God. And God gives him a great victory here. Now when the battle was over, and all the goods had been collected, and all the people have been gotten together, and I'm sure a lot of pack animals were left behind too, because when you're fleeing to get away from some enemy where you don't even know what it is, if it's even human, (laughs) uh, you're not worried about carrying along pack animals or anything else. You just move as quickly as you can with whatever happens to be around. So I think there were probably thousands of pack animals left around to carry the goods and carry the people. (coughs) So here's Abram marching back south, coming back up onto the ridge route to head back down towards Hebron. And he's got this gigantic group of people with him and all this stuff and all these animals. I mean, it's a great horde moving across the landscape here (coughs) as he uh, heads back south, released captives and, and tons of goods that had been carried away. I think the Canaanites came out by the thousands to witness this thing, is it, this, this parade as it went by. And I think Miriam came out to shout, hooray, for Abram. I mean, you know, it was a great victory over an invading enemy. And I think he was hailed as a victor here. God often gives praise to his people in this life. Um, but it needs to come from God, ultimately, and be allowed by God in the mouths of people. Now, it's interesting that the passage seems to indicate they moved very, very slowly. Well, you know, it's a lot of stuff to move. And so they probably weren't moving at any great speed. How slowly they were moving seems to be indicated by the fact that someone was able to go from the great victory up there at Dan all the way down to Sodom to tell the king that the enemy has been defeated, the goods have been recovered, so that Bera there could then go up to the ridge route because he knew Abram would be coming back that way and meet him at Jerusalem. Now, that's, there's a lot of days involved there. Traveling all the way down, he collects whatever few people are still left uh, of Sodom and, and goes up there to meet. I mean, we're talking about many, many, many days, which tells us that Abram was moving extremely slowly with this great crowd of people and all these goods that had been recovered. The king of Sodom met Abram at the Valley of Shaveth, Scripture tells us, or the King's Valley, which is thought to be the upper Cadrone. Now, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, and if you've ever been to the old city of Jerusalem, to the east of the old city of Jerusalem runs the Cadrone Valley. The Cadrone Valley runs south and ultimately eastward and, and ends up going over towards the Dead Sea. It starts up near Jerusalem. And between the old city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives is the Kidron Valley. And the valley moves north of the city and sort of peters out up towards the plateau of Benjamin. Between Jerusalem and Mount Scopus is thought to be this portion of the valley called the King's Valley. So it would really make sense because if he was traveling south, along the ridge route, he would have come across the plateau of Benjamin, and just before he got to Jerusalem, he would come to this valley, just past Mount Scopus. And that would be seemingly the site here where this encounter takes place. The encounter between Abram and the king of Sodom was not the important encounter, however, right? The king of Sodom is not the most important person to intercept Abram on that fateful day. In fact, it would seem that the whole account of this passage, what is the purpose of the 14th chapter of Genesis? It seems that it's there to provide the context, not for Abram's encounter with Barah of Sodom, but for his encounter with Melchizedek of Salem. That is the purpose of the description given here. Melchizedek is probably the most enigmatic person in all of scripture. Let's look again at those verses, 18 to 20, in chapter 14. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him A tenth of all. Several things I think are important to note in this passage as I have outlined them there for you. First, the name Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means or has been translated as king of righteousness. It literally means my king is right. This name appears only ten times in all of Scripture, one time here. One time in Psalm 110, which we'll be looking at later on. The other eight times, it occurs in Hebrews. This is the only place you can find anything about Melchizedek in all of Scripture. Second, we discover that his name, or, or that his title, was King of Salem. Which means King of Shalom, King of Peace. Now, some believe that the city, Salem, was a city that we have not been able to locate, a city that we have not been able to uh, specifically isolate. But most evangelical scholars believe that this is a reference to Jerusalem. The word Jerusalem means foundations of peace. So, you know, it's very probable, very likely, because the seat of Jerusalem had been as far as archaeologists have been able to tell, the city of Jerusalem has, had been in, in existence for a thousand years before this time. Now, it was just a small town. It isn't anything like the Jerusalem of today. Uh, it wasn't even as big as old city Jerusalem. If you've been to Jerusalem, you know that Jerusalem's a big city of about a third of a million, half a million people. But inside the uh, totality of modern Jerusalem is the small little walled city, which is about a square mile in area. But that's the city that was produced much, much later. The walls of modern Jerusalem, uh, of modern old Jerusalem, were mostly built by the Turks in the 16th century when Suleiman the Magnificent was the great conqueror of the East, probably the greatest ruler of his day. He had the upper portions of the wall built. And so those are the Turkish walls when you walk along the top of those walls. Now, the lower portion of the walls are of other different eras. But the city that we're talking about now was much, much teenier. In fact, when David captured it, it was only uh, a few acres. So we're probably just talking about kind of an overgrown village. But nevertheless, the city's name is mentioned in Egyptian writings that date just slightly after Abram's time. So there seems to be no reason to not believe that this was Jerusalem. The earliest people that we know to be connected with the city were the Jebusites. And it was from the Jebusites that David would take the city and make it his capital. Now, were the Jebusites the inhabitants in the day we're talking about? Why not? There's no reason to think otherwise. It's kind of interesting that this, if this refers to Jerusalem, it's the only mention of Jerusalem in all of the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible, this is the only time Jerusalem's ever mentioned, but it's mentioned 640 times in the Old Testament. So obviously, uh, it's kind of interesting how its fame comes later. A third thing to note about this is the reference to the bread and to the wine that was brought to Abram by Melchizedek. Now, it may have been only for the purpose of refreshing him and his crew. That's a possibility. But many feel that it was an early uh, example of the emblems of what would become what we call the communion or the Eucharist, a, a emblems of thanksgiving, the Eucharist thanksgiving. And as, as such, they may have been prophetic symbols of what would symbolize this priesthood, if not specifically this priest. Fourthly, a fourth thing to note about this is Melchizedek is called priest of God Most High. And as such a priest, he blesses Abraham. Abram. And he links him with God Most High. Right? He says, blessed be, uh, blessed be Abram of God Most High. Acknowledging that Abram was the servant of God Most High, as Melchizedek was. And he points out that the victory that Abram had earned was at the hands of God Most High. Because he says right there, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So he, he, I mean, such discernment he has to acknowledge that Abram, is a servant of God Most High, and his victory is the result of God Most High. Fifthly, after living all those years in huh, pagan pagan and then pagan Canaan, and pagan Egypt, can you imagine how impressed Abram was to run into this priest-king who represented God Most High? Oh, <laughs> it must have been like a shot out of the blue. So impressed was he that, and generally it's interpreted here uh, that at the end of verse 20 is not referring to Melchizedek giving to Abram a tenth of things, but because Hebrews later makes that clear uh, that Abram gave to Melchizedek uh, a tenth of all that he had. So impressed was he that he gave a 10% tithe to Melchizedek. This is the first reference in Scripture to the 10% tithe. And it seems to, to set a pattern, a pattern which follows through in Scripture. Now, of course, obviously, the big question is, who is Melchizedek? Who was Melchizedek? Well, the standard view, the view that has been held by most scholars down through time, is that Melchizedek was a, Can- a Canaanite king who was an example of the fact that there were others who believed in the God of Abram besides Abram, that he was not alone in trusting the true and the living God. If this is true, then we can say the least about Melchizedek, that he was a wondrous type of Christ, for a Canaanite especially. He is the very first person in scripture to be called a Kohen, a priest. Now, the question can be asked, how could such a godly man, a man who knew the true and the living God and served him in such an exemplary way that Christ would become a priest after this man's order? How could such a man be the king over a pagan city in a pagan land? Well, only by a miracle, that's for sure. It's interesting that... As we have studied through Genesis up to this point, God has always been called either Yahweh or Elohim. But suddenly in this passage, he is now called El Elyon, God Most High. And Melchizedek is the one who uses the term, introducing it to scripture. Blessed be Abram of God Most High, El Elyon. Now, Abram does not balk. Abram doesn't say, ooh, who's this guy? I mean, who's El Elyon? Never heard of him before. No, Abram doesn't balk at that at all. He, in fact, uses the name himself, right? Well, as we read in this passage, look at verse 22. And Abram said to Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high. Hmm. Yahweh Elohim. uh, Yahweh El Elyon. I mean, he uses the very phrase himself. Where'd he get it? From Melchizedek. He He not only accepted it, he adopted it. And he recognized Melchizedek as a priest of Yahweh. Now, that's one view, that he was a Canaanite king. A second view is a view that has been repeated by John Calvin and Matthew Henry and others that comes from the ancient uh, rabbinical tradition. And that is that Melchizedek was Shem. You know, Shem, Ham, and Japheth? That he was Shem. And that Shem was still alive at this particular time. Now, I suppose if you try to go back and literally add all these things together, it might technically be possible that Shem was alive, but certainly highly improbable that he was still alive in the days of um, Abram. What makes this passage seem, I mean, what makes that interpretation highly unlikely is the Hebrews passage. When you read Hebrews, I mean, to me, Hebrews rules out any human, you know, somebody of natural human, uh, be it a Canaanite, be it Shem, or be it anybody else. I think Hebrews rules all of that out. A third possibility here is the possibility that many evangelical Christians at least adhere to that is based upon... Hebrews chapter 7 and that, that this is a theophany, that this is a manifestation of Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ is literally appearing here in the flesh and talking to Abram. And you know, God gave revelations of himself to so many of his people to, to validate what they were doing and to just give them a great reward for their faithfulness and it's totally within Uh, the likelihood of God doing something like this for this faithful man, Abram. Let's turn and look. We've only got a couple of minutes here, but at least begin to look at Hebrews 7. Because this is the passage uh, that gives us understanding of uh, the Genesis passage. Hebrews 7, beginning at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, But made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those, indeed, of the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected the tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal man received tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed he lives on. I mean, really, it becomes, to me at least, crystal clear that we're not talking about a regular flesh and blood person here. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his, literally, ancestor, when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not being designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become not such on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I mean, he's simply saying here that the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to that of the Aaronic priesthood. And that the Aaronic priesthood was established according to the law of Moses. But the Melchizedekan priesthood was established according to another law. In this case, the law of an indestructible life. And if Melchizedek was a man without father, without mother, without genealogy, some try to say that that means that they simply didn't know who his father and mother were or what his genealogy was. But Hebrews isn't saying he didn't know it. It says he didn't have one. Now, if he's without... Genealogy, he certainly couldn't be a Canaanite king, and he couldn't be Shem either, because we know Shem's genealogy. The, the clear inference here seems to be that Melchizedek was a manifestation of Christ in the flesh, who encountered Abraham that particular day. And we don't have time to do it today, but next Sunday we'll, we'll look at Psalm 110, And Psalm 110 seems to clearly lean in that direction also as David uh, writes this particular reference to Melchizedek. And it seems to indicate that he was not a human being in the natural sense of the word, but was of an eternal order.